It's Tuesday, October 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me today, our man in North Carolina, Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me as always, Chris. We've got some upgrades to discuss in the travel industry and global apparel retail, but we are going to start with the latest from Fastenal. Third quarter profits from the industrial products maker came in higher than expected. Shares of Fastenal up a bit and close to a new all time high. In fact, this is not a household name, but holy cow, are they in the business of household products? I mean, you just go to the Fastenal website and it's hardware, lighting, sealers, uh, electrical equipment, batteries, fasteners. Um, this is uh, this is a good report for them. It's a great report, Chris. And you know, it's a company that I bet lurks in the subconsciousness of many people. If you've ever driven down the highway and just been half paying attention and seen like a fastenal truck plow past you, it's a name that we're sort of familiar with, but like you say, it's not household. But a good company nonetheless for people who like industrial stocks and don't want something too flashy, but companies that have these very solid models that just need optimization over time. They sit in a great place in our economy. You know, Fastenal, as the name implies, actually also sells fastening products, fasteners. You can think of it as a glue company in our economy. And for that reason, I also like it as a bellwether of what's happening out in the larger world. So this quarter, yeah, net sales were up 10%. Um, gross profit, uh, slight increase for, uh, versus the prior year. They, they gained about one percentage point of gross margin to 46.3%, which is a lot in this business. That's uh, you know fairly impressive. And a nice bump in net earnings up to about $243 million. That's another 10% year-over-year increase. What I like about Fastenal a lot is that they have more technology being infused into their selling process than most of us realize. Um, if you've ever looked at this company, you probably know that they have an on-site solution for manufacturers where they basically have their own sales personnel and inventory there. They help manage the inventory. But the business, which I think is the bigger growth driver for them long-term, is this vending bins. They have vending machines they put in manufacturing facilities, and they have bins that are increasingly automated that track inventory themselves and have a digital component to them. This is uh, a long-term investment Fastenal's been making, and it's paying off over time in, in faster sales growth, slightly better margins. Chris, I just breezed through the report uh, this morning. Now, a full 45% of their business can be considered digital. When you take sort of the direct to uh, their industrial customer sales, plus these high-tech bins that know when to request inventory, that, that track uh, barcodes and, and SKUs, et cetera. So, this is a more techie business than, than it would seem on the surface. It's interesting because, you know, Fastenal is not a huge company. It's about a $30 billion company. And yet, I remember talking to Brian Hinman a few years ago. Um, Brian's the chief investment officer at Motley Fool Asset Management Funds. Um, and he said that Fastenal, he, he called it a top five conference call for him. When he's trying to get a sense every quarter of what's going on in the US economy, one of the conference calls that he always listens to is Fastenal, um, because it gives him insight into the industrial side of the economy. 
let's put that into perspective for today. Um, the CEO today was talking about shipping cost in, in general. And I totally agree with Brian. This is a really instructive call. Daniel Thornis rarely holds back. Um, he mentioned today that in, in shipping, it wasn't just difficulty, it was pain. <laughs> All of these manufacturers, industrial concerns, and retailers, as we know, big retailers, are enduring a lot of inflationary pain on shipping costs. They, they tell it like it is. They're very specific about how the underpinnings of the larger economy are affecting Fastenal's business. And because of that sort of truth-telling, I would call it, it is a great call. Sure, is it a five top five call for those who want to know what's really happening out there in the U.S. economy? Yes, I would totally agree with that. Shares of Airbnb up 4% today after getting an analyst upgrade from Cowan. And the thing that interests me is the part of the report that says Wall Street is underestimating the potential for Airbnb's bookings growth in 2022. I'm always interested whenever an analyst stands up and basically says, the rest of you are wrong on this one. It is. It takes some courage when you're in a business that is so focused on what's happening next quarter to be able to do something that we would call foolish with a capital F and say, well, what about four quarters from now or eight quarters from now? And I think the the analysis is sort of spot on. I mean, there are two big drivers in Airbnb's business that should be, a paid, should, should be paid attention to by investors. One is that their bookings are starting to reflect a migration away from big cities. So they're still seeing great bookings in major metropolitan areas, but increasingly they see bookings rising in second tier cities, I call them. These are smaller metropolitan statistical areas in the United States or just smaller cities uh, in uh, close to European capitals is another great example, or travel destinations in Latin America. There are all kinds of examples of this type of city. They are seeing sustained interest in that. And that signal says the world may be changing a little bit uh, after COVID. The other big uh, measure to take a look at is the length of stay. This was something that the company called out in its uh, most recent quarterly report. They're seeing the, the, the days associated with each booking continuing to expand. And in some cities, this is expanding at rates that exceed pre-COVID levels. So there may be a change underway in the way that we are all going to work and travel. I say may here, and I hesitate a bit because so much of this is also governed by tax regulations in each country. If you work in the United States, depending on where your employer is based, it may not be that easy to work in your dream destination for a couple of months. You may have a tax implication and owe two states income taxes, or your employer may not allow you to work in Rome for six months. So while different localities start to work out their tax regulations to attract in uh, high spending remote workers. We'll see some of that change, but it is something that I think this analyst has uh, put his or her finger on that these bookings are pointing to maybe a more sustained piece of market share that Airbnb will enjoy for quite some time to come. And I'm not surprised the stock is up today. Well, and the longer stay that you mentioned, that jives with um, something Matt Argersinger said when I was talking with him recently. 
and because um, he's um, got a place that he rents out. And you know, I just have to believe that if you're if you've got a property and you are listing on Airbnb, it's just got to be better for a number of reasons with the, to have people with longer stays. Um, it, it just requires fewer bookings overall. Presumably, your costs are a little bit lower because if you've got a cleaning crew that's coming in or something like that, like that, that's happening on fewer occasions. So it's look, you never want to put too much emphasis as an investor into a single analyst report, no matter who it's coming from and and what their track record is. But uh, sort of uh, this report about Airbnb. I think does a, a good job of, of basically, essentially strengthening the the um, the baseline case for the business. It's not you know it's not and we've seen this in other industries where a report will come out and it's you know the headline is all about uh, growth strategy, sales growth, whatever. This to me is more along the lines of the underpinnings of Airbnb's business are stronger than some people think and more sustainable than some people think. I agree. It's a thesis that's trying to stress test the case for market share that many um, Airbnb bulls have been making for a long time, which is to say that this market is so vast. It's in the trillions of, of dollars, the total addressable market for extended stays. I mean, they compete with the hotel industry. They compete with the apartment rental industry. Uh, this is a great market here. If Airbnb can keep extending its brand uh, within that, then eventually they'll scale into pretty decent profitability. So this strengthens that case. And we should say at the same time, though, I mean, this business case isn't without risk. One of the more recent dings against Airbnb is how opaque the total cost of the service is if you're on the platform. Because often, and this has happened to me, Chris, you'll, you'll be ready to rent that place. And then you see the cleaning fee come in, which totally changes the picture because that's a variable expense. And you know, we've discussed that before. So there are some risks in this, but uh, this is something we can now, um, for those who, for those of us who are interested and have already been thinking along the same lines, this is a focus point for the next quarterly reports to to watch these metrics. Yeah, I think they've gotten more transparent with the, with the costs, but uh, the, yeah, it's something they could improve even further. Um, before we get to our final story, I just want to mention. Uh, remind folks, our email address is marketfoolery@fool.com, and uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for less than a year, uh, then you're probably unfamiliar with something we refer to as apropos of nothing, which is that uh, once a year or so, uh, we have an episode of this podcast that isn't about investing at all. Uh, it's just sort of uh, shooting the breeze. And, and that's where listeners like you come in, because uh, we've gotten some great suggestions on potential topics for these apropos of nothing episodes. Uh, one that we did last year was, um, what would you put on your Mount Rushmore of soups? That actually ended up being a pretty heated debate, if you can only pick four soups to put on Mount Rushmore. So, um, we do have an Apropos of Nothing episode planned. Uh, it's scheduled to come before the end of the month. And if you have potential topics you want to uh, suggest to us, drop us an email, marketfoolery at fool.com. Shares of Nike are up a bit today after a Goldman Sachs report that said nice things about the overall health of the athletic apparel industry and the growth plans that Nike has in place. And this one seems a little bit fuzzier 
than the report on Airbnb. I mean, it's it, 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 obviously it's positive on Nike, but it was it. it uh, I don't know. I'm curious what you thought of it because it didn't grab me in the same way that the Airbnb one did. I think fuzzy is a great way to describe this. I mean, the thesis here is that Nike still has a strong brand. They've made strides with their direct-to-consumer business. They've been able to bounce back numerous times in the past from the types of challenges that they're facing this year. So they've got supply chain issues, cost inflation, which everybody and his or her brother is facing. But yes, it is a fuzzier thesis. I mean, one way that we can get to terms with uh, this way of looking at a company, which again, this is a very foolish capital F way to look at a very strong multinational conglomerate, is to think about that brand. I'll refer us all back to a survey that came out last week. This is the 42nd edition of Piper Sandler's semi-annual survey, where they survey teens. This year's or latest survey had 10,000 teens participate across 44 states. Nike earned the top spots in the footwear and apparel categories. They had 27% share of the vote when it came to apparel and a bigger footprint at 57% when it came to footwear. Now, in that same survey, Converse came in at uh, 7%, which has been a a Nike brand uh, for, for quite a while. So this is a way for us to sort of quantify the idea that one should invest in Nike because of its brand strength and because it has a really efficient operating model, which takes a lot of free cash flow and invests it in demand expense. That is, how do we drive up demand? We do it through sponsorships. We do it through technical innovation. I'll also say that Nike has done a pretty decent job of um, not trying to fight the trends in the industry. They've been a very willing participant in the move, the movement towards technology embedded uh, clothing and this whole athleisure market. So I think in terms of understanding where they should keep investing to grow, Nike does a very good job. But this is not a straightforward thesis. There is no big change here, um, no, no sea change that says Nike can continue to push all-time highs. It's more about, hey, these guys execute at a level which is pretty impressive, and we see this continuing despite the near-term challenges that have knocked the stock down a bit over the past few months. On Motley Fool Money last week, um, I, I sort of posed the question, you know, who, which group of shareholders is really hoping for good news this earnings season? And Ron Gross uh, said it was Nike. Um, and y- y- you look at, look, this is a, a long-term market-beating stock. Um, but over the past year, it is absolutely trailing the market. So when you talk about sort of the ner- near-term pressures, like, yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's not to say it's not a great business and a great brand, but um, if, you know, if you're a shareholder, you're, you're right to be hoping that Ron Gross um, uh, is right, um, that um, they need some good news. Yeah, and I really think, you know, if you take a look at that Nike chart and just widen it out a bit, so much of this may seem temporary in retrospect. To, to me, they're still chasing those all time highs, even though uh, over the last few months they've been battered by the same issues that I, that I mentioned with supply chains, inflation, just getting product into stores. 
Um, however, I think that those, again, are temporary. And Ron is so right to point out that if you're a Nike sh shareholder, you just want to hear that things are back on track and that you can feel very comfortable with Nike, such a sleepy stock, but a high achiever. Uh, the volatility hasn't been very welcome this year, so so I could totally uh, get behind his argument there. Thank you for reminding me that uh, Nike owns Converse, because I always forget that. And I'm old enough to remember a time when Converse was a very dominant uh, athletic shoe brand. And, um, you know, nice reminder that uh, uh, just because you're on top of the world uh, as a business for a while doesn't mean you're going to stay there. For sure, and uh, I'm literally wearing a pair of Chuck Taylors as we speak. So, with you there, you know, I'll love to to Converse and to Nike for that for that matter. I I, I often have been guilty of second guessing this company over the years. So sometimes you have to express your appreciation. So I might as well do it while we're still here uh, in the next minute or so. Nike has has done an admirable job over the decades, just pushing out great earnings, value creation, and withstanding a lot of change in, in the industry. Uh, this is something I think going forward, again, if you're a shareholder, you can sort of sleep well at night knowing that the management team is always a little bit ahead of the trend and they've invested appropriately by the time that trend really uh, starts to take off. They were a pioneer in the sports endorsement game, still do very well at that and have also mastered the art of taking a single sub-brand like the Jordan brand and just making it sort of an everlasting property. So um, hats off to Nike in that regard too. Again, like Airbnb, not a risk-free thesis, but uh, this is definitely among blue chip companies, one that, that you can sense will keep executing for a while to come. Awesome, Charmer. Great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Chris. A lot of fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery, the show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.